0: Hi, my name is Michael Sano. I'm Jewish, and I love Israel. So if you love Israel, if you love being Jewish, or if you have an unwavering connection to the land of Israel, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? My name is Michael Sano and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast, the only positive podcast about the food, the culture, the people, and the history of the state of Israel. Listen, if this is your first time watching, um, don't forget to hit the like button, the subscribe button, and the notification bell. And if you want to take us with you, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Hey, uh, this video is uh, brought to you by, this podcast is brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcard Set. Um, it is a great way to learn Hebrew or to brush up and uh, get it back into. Uh, Get it back into your brain. Um, we'll have more on that at the end. Also, I just have a big, big, huge announcement. I, we, I, we have released our, uh, my first uh, children's book called Who is a Jew? And uh, it's illustrated by um, Dana Korokova. Um, an amazing illustrator from from Tel Aviv. And uh, it's basically, it's a bedtime story uh, where you can tell your child, uh, boy or girl, what it means to be a Jew. Um, Real simple, real straight, uh, nothing controversial in it, um, but it's just a really fun read. Um, It's available on Amazon uh, for Kindle. So I'm going to talk more about it at the end, though. Right now... We are in the second half of our The 12 Cities in Israel uh, series for the podcast, and this episode is on Haifa, uh, the city by the bay, Haifa Bay. Um, some of you may know it from the Ultra Song with Itai Levy, Messi Baba Haifa, and um, and I would, I won't sing it because I would slaughter it, but you, it's, it's awesome um, if you want to get some great pictures of it. Also, I have a, um, a travel vlog that I did on Haifa where I give you all of the sights and sounds. But right now, we're not going to talk about that. Right now, we're going to talk about the history. Um, and before we do that, Peter, um, J-Hats, this is for you. Uh, You guys, you were my Patreon subscribers, so hold on just one sec. Mm. Now, Haifa is right in the thick of it, historically. So this is going to be... So put on your seatbelt. This one's going to be a a little bit of a longer one. Not too long. It'll be fun. A lot of great information. But hold on just one sec. Mm. Had to get that coffee. Um, All right. So... Haifa, located on a bay on the Mediterranean that bears its name, the Bay of Haifa. Um, It's the third largest city in Israel after Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and is the seat of the Haifa metropolitan area, one of the most populous metropolitan areas in Israel. Haifa is home to the Baha'i Faiths, Baha'i World Center, making it uh, a destination for Baha'i Pilgrimage and it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, Haifa is a truly Mediterranean city that rests on the slopes of Mount Carmel and has a history that spans back over 3,000 years, um, all the way back to the late Bronze Age of the 14th century BCE. And over all of this time, Haifa has been ruled by the Canaanites, the Israelites, the Phoenicians, the Persians, the Hasmoneans, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Arabs, the Crusaders, the Ottomans, and finally the British before becoming an important part of the state in 1948. Um, all right, so we're going to go back to that late Bronze Age, 14th century BCE, and we are going to go to tell Abu Hawam. And Now, a tell in archaeology, and this is important because I've talked about, I've spoken to you guys about tells in the past, tell Michal, and a tell in archaeology is an artificial topographical feature or a mound that is made up of layered debris from the accumulated refuse of generations of people who once formed a settlement there and dwelt on that same site. So it's their accumulated stuff from millennia of existing in a place. Um, A typical tell or mound looks like a low shortened cone with sloping sides and a flat mesa-like top. Um, In Israel tells are typically the sites where historical settlements um, in the region existed. And the small port city of Tel Abu Hawam, located in the Haifa region, is an example of this. And it dates back, as I said, to the late Bronze Age of the 14th century BCE. So now you guys know what a Tel is. And when I mention them, and I do mention them quite a few times um, because they're all over the place... Um the 6th century BCE Greek explorer, writer and geographer Silax describes in his writings a city between the bay and the promontory of Zeus which would have been present day Mount Carmel. This is thought to be a reference to a settlement on the site of modern day Haifa during the Persian period. Um eventually though this settlement uh moved during the Hellenistic period which is the Greeks to a new site south of what is now Bat Galim, after the original port became blocked with silt. Now, Bat Galim is in the center. There's a really great beach there, nice local town. But I'm going to talk about that and the neighborhoods in the next episode. This episode is the history. Now we go back to the Torah, the Bible. So we talk about um, Haifa and its environs in did it show up in the Bible? Well, Mount Carmel is best known as the site of the prophet Elijah's dramatic showdown. Dun, dun, dun. With the 850 pagan Canaanite prophets in one Kings 18:19. In the story, all of Israel, Uh, was summoned to Mount Carmel to witness the confrontation between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. Can anyone think of Monday Night Raw, wrestling, all of that? This was the equivalent of that in a biblical sense. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. That's awesome, though. Um, This super-duper showdown um, would show whose God was able to send fire from heaven to consume their prospective offerings. They both had offerings out. Now, the prophets of Baal prayed all day and cut themselves violently, gross, to get their God's attention, but this would all be for naught uh, because their calls would go unanswered. No fire for the Canaanites. Um, Now it was Elijah's turn and he rebuilt the ruined altar of God that existed on Mount Carmel. He set the offering on top of uh, the wood and then drenched the whole thing with water. Talk about confident and prayed aloud, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So he was trying to get the will of the people back to um, Hashem, back to uh, the God of Israel. Um, and this is in 1 Kings 18:36 through 37, and this happened in Haifa. God answered with a spectacular display of fire from heaven. Uh consuming the offering, licking up the sodden wood, as well as every drop of water that had been poured over the altar. Even the rocks of the altar were consumed. So if you didn't believe before, you might start believing now. Um, pretty, pretty impressive story. Now, the people fell on their faces, proclaiming the Lord, he is God. The Lord He has got this is in 1 Kings uh 1839. Elijah then ordered the people to uh execute the false prophets according to the Mosaic Law found in Deuteronomy uh 13. And I I, I had to include the entirety of this story because it's such a tremendous, fascinating story. And if you believe that uh the Torah, the Bible is um part of the history of the land of Israel of what is now the modern state of Israel, then that's a tremendous event. And Elijah he comes back, uh, figuratively, um, to be a part of our story, our historical story again, because it is, uh, mentioned again in the Hebrew Bible in one Kings, nineteen nine. um, with the verse, and he came hither unto a cave and lodged there. Um, And a grotto at the top of Mount Carmel is known as the Cave of Elijah, um, traditionally linked to the prophet Elijah and his apprentice um, Elisha. In Arabic, the highest peak of the Carmel range is called Muraka, or Place of Burning. Interesting, interesting. Harking back to the burnt offerings and sacrifices that were there in Canaanite and early Israelite times. So um, it was known even to the Arabs who had dwelt in the land, in the Levant, in um, what was uh, Palestine and is now the state of Israel. Um, They knew that it was a place of burning, bringing the story of Elijah into um more recent times. So that is the biblical story of Haifa and but we have to keep going because there's more history. There is a place, another tell, which is the mound that I was telling you about, called Tell Shikmona. And I told you that um Tell Abu Hasawam, I think it was, was the first place and that they that closed Closed down, it shut down for business, and then they went to Tel Shikmona, which was southwest of, uh, of Batgalim. So, the new st- settlement that was established uh, to the south of Batgalim following the decline of Tel Abu Hawam can be found in the remains of Tel Shikmona. Um, this archeological site is the location of the ancient settlement of Sycamine. Um, for those of you who know that name, hold on, I'm going to have another sip of coffee real quick. Hold on. Because I love the coffee. What? I love the coffee. I can't live without it. Um, Sycamine appears throughout the ancient record and is mentioned in the Greek guide to sea roots known as... The Periplus of pseudo Silax. remember Silax came up before, it is mentioned here as Sikminon and is described as a city of the Tyrians, that's going to come up, or as a city of the Phoenicians from the city of Tyr. Tyr uh, is in what would be modern day, I think it's in modern day Lebanon, Um, and also that there was a river of the same name. Um, It is mentioned by Stephanus, Stephanus of Byzantium, as Sycamenon, in his geographical dictionary entitled Ethnica. And he states that it is a city of the Phoenicians. And that it is a Phoenician place is important because something that you never thought of comes from Tyre and comes from Phoenicia. Now, Josephus, in his historical perspective, Antiquities of the Jews, mentioned uh, Shikmona, Sycamene, um, as being a place where ships could be brought to harbor and where Ptolemy Laterus, during an incursion into the region, had brought his army ashore. Also, the Greek ge- geographer, philosopher, and historian Strabo, uh, who lived, excuse me, a hiccup from the coffee. Who lived from 63 uh, or 63 BCE to 24 CE mentions the site Sycaminopolis as being no more than a ruin during his lifetime. So, in the time from when Josephus was around to the time when Strabo was around, um, which doesn't make sense. That 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 has to be they're they're pretty much contemporaries, same ish ish. Time, um, so we know that, um, during that span of time, it was now uh, a ruin. So the Mishnah or Deny, and this is where the Tyrian connection comes in the den Demai 1 1, which was in, compiled in 189 CE, so we're pushing ahead, mentions the region of Shikmona as being renowned for its cultivated variety of jujubes which are a type of evergreen tree. Um, Not what I thought it was gonna say. So um, yes, so now we're talking, there are a lot of resources coming from this area, um, which is Shikmona. The Bordeaux Pilgrim, an anonymous Christian pilgrim from Berdigala, which is now Bordeaux, France, um, passed through sycaminon in 333 CE while traveling through the holy land um this account was recorded in the itinerarium Hierosolimitanum, which is translated as the jerusalem itinerary uh this text is the oldest known christian itinerarium itinerariums were ancient uh road maps of the old roman road system um So it's mentioned all, uh, Haifa was an important place. Akko was important. It's just across the Bay of Haifa uh, from it. But here you see this uh, Shikmona is coming up over and over and over and over again. Now remains found at Tel Shikmona date from the late Bronze Age all the way up to the late Byzantine period, the lower city, East and mainly south of the Tell is dated to the late Roman uh, period, the Byzantine period. Um, And no remains have been found dating to the early Arab period. Um, This has led archaeologists to conclude that Shikmona was abandoned sometime before the 7th century CE. So it was abandoned before... Uh, the Muslims came through the region now during excavations conducted at Tel Shikmona, various types of pottery shards have been discovered with the most common of them belonging to a type that has been found to been made on the Phoenician coast uh, during the first century CE so it went from being a Phoenician city to being a Roman city and then just disappearing Um, also discovered and this is what the Tear Connection is, and I thought I had made it before, but I, I didn't. I apologize. Also discovered was evidence of a dyeing industry, dyeing as in dyes for clothing, uh, centered at Telsicmona that used the Murex, Murex uh, sea snail to produce the rare and expensive dye known as Tyrian purple. Uh, this production center dates all the way back to the Iron Age, which was from 1200 uh, to 500 BCE. Now, this is so important because purple was the most expensive um, color. The color royal blue, which is not the royal blue from today, it's a more purplish color in actuality, um, comes from Tyrian purple uh, and is renowned and expensive because of this dyeing industry. Now, uh, because of this snail. Now, this industry also made, uh, this dyeing industry also made it a center for making the traditional techelet dye used in the garments of the high priests in the temple. Techelet is a colored dye, which the Hebrew Bible commands the Jews to use for one, two, or four of the eight half strings hanging down as interpreted in rabbinic Judaism, or a number of cords ranging from one up to the same number of threads as the non-Techelet threads, uh, according to opinions in Karia Judaism. Um, At some point following the destruction of the Second Temple, the knowledge and traditions about the correct method of the dye was lost uh, for rabbinic Judaism in Israel. And since then, most rabbinic Diaspora Jews and Israeli Jews as well have worn white Tzitziot um, without any dyes. Techelet, uh, which appear 48 times in the Tanakh, is a specific blue violet dye uh, produced, according to the rabbis, from a creature referred to as a Hilazon, with other blue dyes being viewed as unacceptable. Um, some explain the black stripes found on many traditional prayer shawls as representing the loss of this dye. So that is what made Shikmona for for uh, for Jews, uh, rabbinic Jews, um, religious Jews, so important. Because this was where something that was important to the priests in the temple was lost. And also I told you about um the the massive wealth that this die created so um so that's the end of Shikmona, but is that the end of haifa no not at all um and this is where haifa actually begins so when haifa first was settled it is believed to have occupied the area which extends from the present-day rambam hospital which is huge it's in bakalim um to the jewish cemetery on yafo street and the inhabitants here in the beginning engaged in fishing and agriculture, which is, I mean, that's pretty what you would do. I mean, it's the Mediterranean. What, it's the same thing every other uh, Mediterranean settlement relied on in the beginning. I'm going to have another sip of coffee. Hold on. Um, and Haifa is one of my favorite cities. If you have the opportunity to go, go. Um, So, now uh, we're moving into the Roman period. And during the Roman period, in about the 3rd century CE, uh, Haifa was first um, mentioned in Talmudic literature. What? Um, It is described as a Jewish fishing village in the home of Rabbi Avdimi, who was among one of the greatest of the Amoraim. Um, the Jewish scholars who lived during the period between 200 and 500 CE in Israel, as well as other Jewish scholars who lived there. And according to the Talmud, fishermen caught murak sea snails, which yielded the purple dye used to make talit, which I told you about, um, Jewish prayer shawls uh, from Haifa, uh, where they made them in Haifa. Sorry, I wrote that wrong. Now, evidence of this, is that there are tombs dating from the Roman era that include Jewish burial caves. What? Um, and they've been found in the area. So there, that is amazing. You have stuff going all the Jewish. So if you're in Jerusalem not uncommon to find a Jewish burial site that goes all the way back. But to find one in Haifa is pretty cool, is pretty great uh, because it adds to the historical, for the Jews, historical significance to the city. Now, during the Byzantine Empire, uh, when they ruled the area, Haifa continued to grow, but it did not have any major importance within the region. Um, Now, there is a kina, a traditional Jewish song of lamentation that speaks of the destruction of the Jewish community of Haifa along with other communities when the Byzantines reconquered the colony from the Sasanian Empire. And this occurred in 628 during the Byzantine Sasanian War. Um, Now, moving out of the Muslim period into the, uh, out of the Byzantine period into the Muslim period, um, their Byzantine rule ended in the 7th century when Haifa was conquered by the Persians and again conquered by the Arab conquest of Palestine um, against the Byzantines in the from the 630s to the 640s by the Rashidun Caliphate. Following this, the port city of Akko was given considerably more prominence, and I spoke about that in the Akko episode, which you should check out, uh, thus leaving ha- Haifa largely overlooked. Over time, though, This began to change and the Rashidun Caliphate eventually began developing Haifa into a larger trading and fishing port. Um, And in the 9th century, under the Umayyad and the Abbasid Caliphates, Haifa began establishing trade with Egyptian ports to the south. And the city also became home to several several shipbuilders at this time. Um, The inhabitants, both Arabs and Jews, were engaging in trade and maritime commerce and glass production, had no idea, and dye production, uh, the latter made from marine snails um, and was one of the city's most lucrative industries. So it's really interesting that they call it Tyrian Blue when, according to a bunch of the research, a lot of this was done. In Haifa, I don't know if they were component. Uh, You did, uh, Tyr did theirs and Haifa did theirs or what, but it's pretty interesting. Because as much as they say it doesn't have prominence, it appears that this is throughout all of the historical records that I've been, you know, looking at. Uh, to get research for this episode. It keeps coming up. Um, now, the period of prosperity for the residents of Haifa ended in 1100 when the city was besieged and blockaded by crusaders from Europe shortly after the end of the first crusade. And it was then conquered after a fierce battle between the crusaders and Haifa's Jewish inhabitants and Saracen garrison. So the Jews and the Muslims fought together against the crusaders in Haifa. Now, during this period, Jews comprised the majority of the city's population, and Haifa, under crusader control, was reduced to a small fortified coastal stronghold and was part of the Principality of Galilee within this newly established kingdom of Jerusalem set up by the crusaders. Now, Haifa changed hands again following Saladin's Ayyubid army victory um, at the Battle of Hattin in mid-July of 1187. Uh, Following this capture, the city's crusader fortress was destroyed. Four years later, in 1191, the crusaders under Richard the Lionheart recaptured Haifa. But in the 12th century, uh, uh, and... In the 12th century, religious hermits started inhabiting the caves on Mount Carmel. Remember, I mentioned them in the beginning. And in the 13th century, they formed a new Catholic monastic order, the Carmelites. In 1265, the army of Mamluk Sultan Baybars captured the city of Haifa, uh, destroying its fortifications, uh, which had been rebuilt by King Louis IX of France, um, as well as a majority of the city's homes, to prevent the European Crusaders from returning. Um, at this time, the Mamluks also converted the Carmelite Church, <coughs> excuse me, which had been built on the peak of Mount Carmel and can still be seen to this day. Um, and but eventually, it was again converted out of a mosque and into a hospital. Um, in the 19th century, and I know I'm jumping forward a bit, it was restored as a Carmelite monastery, the Stella Maris Monastery, and the altar of the church, which can be seen today, uh, the church and the altar, all of it, stands over a cave that has been associated with the biblical prophet Elijah. So, full circle right there. Um And that is why that story is so important, that Elijah's story is so important, because it comes back to be a part of the modern-day narrative. Um, So from the time of Haifa's conquest by the Mamluks all the way up until the 15th century, um, Haifa remained an unfortified small village and at times was even uninhabited. At various times, there were a few Jews living there, and both Jews and Christians made pilgrimages to the cave of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And now we're moving out of the Muslim period into the uh, Ottoman period with their conquering of Palestine in 1516. Um, and at the time, Haifa was uninhabited. And an account of its resettlement was given in, uh, by German traveler, Leonard Raoulf who visited Palestine in 1575 um, and in 1596 Haifa appeared on Ottoman tax registers as being in the Nahiya or Ottoman administrative region. Uh, it had a population of 32 uh, Muslim household and paid households and paid taxes on wheat, barley, summer crops, olives, And goats or beehives Um, Haifa was also mentioned in the accounts of travelers as a half ruined, impoverished village with few inhabitants. And during the 17th century, Ottoman Haifa expanded its commercial trade between Europe and Palestine. Uh, This increase in port traffic saw Haifa's prominence in the region increase as more ships began docking there rather than in Akko. I wonder if it's easier to get into Haifa than it is to get into Akko. Um, I don't know. I remember there was something in the Akko episode about silting the harbor, but I don't remember if that was Akko or was that Ashkelon. It could have been. I don't know. Hold up. I'm going to have another sip of coffee. Give me one second. Mm. Oh, yes. This is a lifesaver. So, all right, by 1742, Haifa was a small village with a Jewish community and a synagogue comprised mainly of immigrants from Morocco and Algeria. In 1764 to 65, it had 250 inhabitants and was located at Tel Shikmona, the site of ancient Sikaminim. And in 1765, Zahir Alumar the Arab ruler of Akko and the Galilee, moved the population to a new fortified site 1.5 miles to the east and raised the old site. And according to historian Moshe Sharon, this new Haifa was established by Zahir in 1769 and marked the beginning of modern Haifa. And after Al-Umar's death in 1775, the town remained under Ottoman rule until 1918, with the exception of two brief periods that I'm going to talk about. The first is in 1799, when Napoleon Bonaparte conquered Haifa during the unsuccessful campaign to conquer Palestine and Syria, but he soon had to withdraw um, in the campaign's final proclamation, Napoleon took credit for having raised the fortifications of Khafa, as the name was spelled at the time, along with those of Gaza, uh, Yafo, and Akko. Uh, Between The second was between 1831 and 1840, uh, when the Egyptian viceroy Muhammad Ali governed Haifa after his son Ibrahim Pasha had took taking control of it from the Ottomans. Um, What the Egyptian occupation, when the Egyptian occupation ended, and Akko declined, the importance in Haifa rose. And in 1858, the walled city of Haifa had become overcrowded, and the first houses began to be built outside the city walls um, on the mountain slope. So all those houses on the mountainside of Haifa started at that time. So in 1859, the British survey of Western Palestine estimated Haifa's population to be about 3,000 people. So it's growing. It's growing. It's getting bigger. Oh, excuse me. Another hiccup. Sorry. So during this time, Haifa remained um, majority Muslim. Um, but a small Jewish community continue, continued to exist there. And in 1798, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov um, spent Rosh Hashanah with the Jewish community of Haifa. In 1839, the Jewish population numbered 124 due to the growing influence of the Carmelite monks. Haifa's Christian population grew and by 1840, approximately 40% of the inhabitants of Haifa were Christian Arabs. In 1868, Haifa saw the arrival of German Protestant messianics, many of whom were from a group called Templars. And they were a society for the advancement of Jewish settlements in Palestine. Um, and they settled what it, in what is now known as the German colony. And they were instrumental in uh, Haifa's industrial and economic development. The Templars built and operated a steam-based power station, uh, opened factories and inaugurated a uh, carriage services to Akko, Nazareth and Tiberias. And their role, uh, their ex- existence there basically played a role in modernizing Um, The city now the mid 19th century saw the first major wave of Jewish immigration to Haifa with most coming from Morocco um, and there was a similar wave coming from Turkey a few years later. Um, in, the 1870, in the 1870s, large numbers of Jewish and Arab migrants came to Haifa due to the town's growing prosperity. And Jews constituted one-eighth of Haifa's population at that time, almost all of whom were recent immigrants from Morocco and Turkey, as I stated. Um, these Jewish residents of Haifa lived mostly in the Jewish quarter, uh, which was located in the eastern part of the town. Uh, continued uh, continued Jewish immigration gradually raised the Jewish population of Haifa and included a small number of Ashkenazi families, most of whom opened hotels for Jewish migrants coming into the city. Um, in 1875, the Jewish community of Haifa held its own census, which counted the Jewish population at around 200. Um Now, the first Aliyah of the late 19th century and the second Aliyah of the early 20th century saw Jewish immigrants who were mainly from Eastern Europe uh, arrive in Haifa in significant numbers. In particular, a significant number of Jewish immigrants from Romania settled in Haifa in the 1880s during this first Aliyah period. During this time, the Central Jewish Colonization Society in Romania purchased over 1,000 acres near Haifa. As the Jewish settlers had mostly been city dwellers, they hired the former lands tenants to instruct them in agriculture, which is kind of cool. You're taking something away, but you're also giving something back by paying them. Um, The Jewish population rose from 1,500 to 1,900 uh the, no. The Jewish population rose from one thousand five hundred in nineteen hundred to three thousand just prior to World War One. So in nineteen in seventeen years, the uh the population doubled of Jews in Haifa. In nineteen oh nine, Haifa became important to the Baha'i Faith when the remains of the Bab, founder of the Baha'i Faith and forerunner of Baha'i ula in the bahai faith were moved from akko to haifa and interred in the shrine built on mount carmel beautiful shrine which can still be seen today go see it um bahai is considered the shrine bahais bahais consider the shrine that's a possessive uh sorry bahais consider the shrine uh to be their second holiest place on earth after the shrine of the baha'u'llah in akko its precise location on mount carmel was shown to baha'u'llah himself uh by baha'u'llah himself to his eldest son abdul baha in 1891 abdul bahai planned the structure was which was designed and completed several years later by his grandson, Shoghi Effendi, in a separate room, the remains of Abdul Bahá'í were buried in November 1921. I'm sorry, I know I slaughtered that. Um, it's all the apostrophes and everything, and I, I just have difficulty pronouncing it. Um, but it is really cool, and it's really amazing to be there in that garden. It is like, it's almost like Heaven on Earth. It's really amazing. Um, in the early 20th century, Haifa began, began to emerge as an industrial port city and a growing population center. Um, a branch of the Hejaz Railway, which ran from Damascus to Medina, Uh, known as the jezreel valley railway that's what that section they just built was built between 1903 and 1905 and this railway increased the city's volume of trade and also attracted workers and foreign merchants to the region um that was a jump from the bahai into industrialization and i'm sorry it was so but i got caught up in all the uh and all the pronunciations and it's embarrassing because it is such an amazing thing and i want to give the baha'is recognition for bringing uh some beauty and prominence to haifa um so it's important that i put them in there but i am sorry that i slaughtered it (laughs) all right so in 1912 construction began uh with classes beginning in 1924 on the Technion Institute of Technology. And this was a Jewish technical school that would eventually go on to become Israel's uh, one of Israel's top universities. And it really is. Um, the Jews of Haifa, of Haifa also founded numerous factories and cultural institutions. So we're seeing after this first and second aliyah and this uh, aliyah from uh, Morocco and Turkey that Jews are really becoming a part of the fiber of the city, the industrial fiber of the city. And they are really doing a lot to enrich the city and to bring it um, just uh, into the 20th century. Um, one more sip of coffee and we move into the British mandate. Uh, uh, uh. All right, so in September 1918, during World War I, Indian horsemen of the British army, armed with spears and swords, no lie, captured Haifa from the Ottomans by overrunning their positions. This battle began on the 22nd of September when British troops, then heading to Nazareth, received a reconnaissance report indicating that the Ottomans were leaving Haifa. Preparations were made for the British to enter the city, but they immediately came under fire in the Balad al-Sheikh district or uh, present day city of Nasher. Um, After a regrouping by the British, an elite unit of Indian horsemen were sent to attack the Turkish positions on the flanks and overran their artillery guns on Mount Carmel, thus giving the British a a victory over the Ottomans Um, and under following this um, and the defeat of the uh, the axis in World War One, the mandate system was put into place and Haifa was within the British mandate and under the British mandate Haifa saw a boom in industrial development due to British operation of the Kirkuk Haifa Oil Pipeline, which was a crude oil pipeline from the oil fields of Kirkuk located in the former Ottoman vilayet of Mosul in northern Iraq through Transjordan to the Mediterranean port city of Haifa. The pipeline was operational between 1935 and 1948. Because the port had a potential as a major source of income, many Jewish immigrants of the 4th and the 5th Aliyah settled in haifa this also led to the establishment of new towns such as nesher as i mentioned before in 1924 which was founded as a workers town for the nesher cement factory and Krayot on the outskirts of haifa in the 1930s at the same time the arab population also increased with an influx of migrants coming mainly from the surrounding villages as well as from southern Syria. This Arab uh, immigration came mainly as a result of post-World War I inflation in former Ottoman territories. And a census conducted in 1922 by the British authorities recorded Haifa as having a population of 9,377 Muslims. Uh, 8,863 Christians and 6,230 Jews and 164 others. Don't know what they are. Um, Another census conducted in 1931 showed that the population increased to 20,324 Muslims, 13,824 Christians, and 15,923 Jews and 332 others. This means that during the almost 10 year period, there was an increase in the Jewish population of about 256%, an increase in the Muslim population of about 217%, an increase in the Christian population by 156%. By 1938, there were 52,000 Jews and 51,000 Muslims and Christians combined living in haifa so this number of jews continues to increase and increase now because of the british run kirkuk haifa oil pipeline the city owed much of its development um to british plans to make it their central port and hub for middle eastern crude oil Uh, the british government developed the port and built in it's refineries, uh, thus making Haifa Center for the region's heavy industries. It was also one of the first towns in the mandate, probably the Middle East, to be electrified with the Palestine Electric Company, putting uh, the Haifa electrical power station online in 1925. The Palestine Railways, which was also owned by the British Mandate government, also built its rail workshops in Haifa. By 1945, Haifa had a population that was 40% Jewish, 33% Muslim, and 20% Christian. The numbers that were given in 1947 show Haifa was comprised of about 74,230 Jews, and about 70,910 Arabs with 41,000 being Muslims and twenty-nine thousand nine hundred and ten being Christians. Uh, These Christians were mostly Greek Melkite Catholics, which I had never heard of before. I didn't know that was the different kinds of Catholics, but there you go. Now you know. Um, It is important to also note, um, again, that the Baha'i faith, has since 1918 seen Haifa as its as its administrative and spiritual center and that added so you have all of this development going on and you have all of this industrialization going on you also have to understand the Baha'i gardens are being put up the side of the mountain so it's not this industrial pit. Um, Thanks to the Baha'is. Thank you, Baha'is. All right, now I have to go. um, That brings us to a dark period, a very dark period. Um, And I have to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it, but I have to talk about it. And there are certain things in history I don't want to talk about that I have to talk about. Um, And that is the 1947-1948 Civil War in Palestine. Now, on the 29th of November, 1947, the 1947 UN partition plan was released um, and designated Haifa as part of the proposed future Jewish state. Um, This historic decision to finally give a homeland to the Jews quickly erupted into widespread protests by the Arab population living within the British mandate. These protests quickly devolved into violence between both Arabs and Jews that left many dead. One of these incidents occurred on the 30th of December, 1947, when members of the Irgun, a Jewish underground militia, added fuel to this fire and threw bombs into a crowd of Arabs outside the gates of the consolidated refineries in Haifa, killing six and injuring 42. In response to this attack, Arab employees of the company killed 39 Jewish employees in what would become known as the Haifa Oil Refinery Massacre. The Haganah, another Jewish militia who were the precursor to the IDF and under the control of David Ben-Gurion, retaliated with a raid on the Arab village of Balad al-Sheikh where many of the Arab refinery workers lived, in what became known as the Balad al-Sheikh Massacre. I want you to let that settle in. Three separate violent events, all wrapped up as one. The background of what led to this event is often left out, and it must be stated that by bringing this information in, I am not in any way shaking, making uh, an excuse for this violent behavior. But the actions of the Urgun and the Haganah are often left without context. On December 24th, 1947, four Jews were killed by Arab snipers in Haifa, and in response four Arabs were killed by Jewish militants. Prior to that, on September 30th, 1947, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency released an article entitled Irgun Kills Ten in Dawn Blasting at British Police Headquarters in Kaifa." This article describes a terrorist incident that killed four British and four Arab policemen, an Arab girl, and an Arab street vendor, and that the wounded include 28 British constables, a British police sergeant, and 14 Jewish and 11 Arab civilians. 13 of the constables suffered serious injuries. This attack was perpetrated by the Irgun in retaliation for the deportation by the British of Jewish immigrants who were coming to Palestine out to Hamburg and to Cyprus. These violent incidents building up to the Haifa oil refinery massacre make it obvious that tensions between the two populations was high and that what is often seen as one event is in actuality three separate events. The attack by the Irgun, the attack by the Arab workers, and the attack by the Haganah. All done with three separate motivations. The Irgun... They were terrorists. They just wanted to kill Arabs. The Arabs, they just wanted revenge. The Haganah, they wanted revenge. Regardless, all of these acts are despicable and morally wrong. It does not matter who started it. All parties continued the violence in this incident and have an equal measure in the guilt. I know that's probably going to upset some people on both sides. I don't care. That's how I feel. I am patriotic. I love Israel. But when something's wrong and it hurts me morally, I call it. And that's part of the history of Haifa. You get straight dope with me, so. All right, um, I'm. I need to bounce back from this. All right, that's it. Uh, that is the hist- uh, the 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 history of Haifa, and I wish I could have ended on a happier note. Um, but that is that's the show <laughs> right. hey listen if you like this episode hit the like button the subscribe button and the notification bell um if you again as i said if you want to catch us take us with you to the gym in the car uh when you're taking a walk um you can find us on soundcloud itunes google podcasts stitcher TuneIn, and on spotify um as i said also in the beginning Uh, this show is brought to you by the 12 cities in Israel, modern Hebrew flashcards. Um, we have three sets out right now. We got two more coming. Um, we have, uh, the Aleph bet in print and script. We have numbers in Hebrew, so you can learn the, the Hebrew numbers. Once you start to know numbers in a, in, in a language, use them every day. Picking up Hebrew will be nothing. Um, it'll be easy. Uh, we also have body and clothing. the The idea being, you know numbers, you learn, you know your immediate self, you learn. I know what shirt, koltzah, kippa, yad, all of that. You're gonna, you know all these things about yourself in Hebrew. You're gonna be able to explain yourself and speak in Hebrew. Um, we have two more: uh, food and home. And those will be coming soon. But right now, we'll just release. And this week, I'm going to do a couple of promotions for it. Um, Who is a Jew? Our children's book, our children's bedtime story uh, for um, kids to learn uh, what a Jew is. So I think it's pretty exciting. I think it's pretty cool. Um, And I've had a lot of help with it and people are awesome um all right that's it uh the the not Jeli binatati mochati la berach ani shab mozifor set mola Alana al ana fax batwa iti shamkil noa shum darlo mukar sham limata pargi sha abudab satimi bene a me sei un